0: Hello, and welcome to a new mini series on The Cure called Mind the Sugars. My name is Sage Gale, one of the hospitalists here at Dartmouth who has been working on diabetes education care for the past few years. I'm excited to be here to introduce this new segment that we will be recording on this podcast centered around inpatient diabetes management. There's a lot to know about diabetes in general, for sure. And we hope to use these podcast sessions to empower providers with educational content to help manage an increasingly complex patient population and also to think about one of the most widely used and also most potentially dangerous medications out there, insulin. We have plans on many educational podcasts that we hope will be of benefit to help providers give comprehensive diabetic care to anyone hospitalized in our healthcare system. This podcast is meant to be used solely for educational purposes. To give a little bit more context about why we care so much about inpatient diabetes care and why so much of this is centered around insulin, we wanted to start off with some context about just how widely used and also how potentially dangerous insulin is. It's currently rated as a high alert medication, which essentially means it has a greater risk of causing significant patient harm if there is an error. Executive summaries across our hospital in the past have detailed 30 categories of error occurring across the span of one calendar year related to insulin use alone. It is also amongst the top eight most hazardous drugs resulting in patient harm nationwide. Insulin is also prescribed in high frequency during any given hospitalization, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Another way of looking at this is through all-cause readmission rates. And again, diabetes independently increases a patient's risk of being readmitted when comparing some of the most common discharge diagnoses-related groups. At DHMC, we have tried a lot of different interventions to try and decrease the number of adverse events associated with insulin errors. Nationwide, hospitals, large and small, are also starting to pay more attention to these events as CMS has introduced three new electronic clinical quality measures. This will be a metric that will have real financial implications for Medicaid hospitalization reimbursement across the entire US. Two of these clinical quality measures are reporting requirements on glycemic management. Both rates of severe hyperglycemia during a hospital say, as well as data on patients experiencing severe hypoglycemia are gonna be tracked and again, have these repercussions nationwide. Myself and a multi-specialty team of diabetes endocrinology advanced practitioners and clinical pharmacists have teamed up to make this educational podcast, which is geared towards the resident learner. This will not be exclusively for physicians, however, and we hope to engage anyone interested in improving inpatient care for diabetic patients to listen and learn along with us as we mine the glucose. We've worked hard to create educational content blocks around core concepts for inpatient diabetic care. Each block will consist of three roughly 10 to 15-minute podcasts and be associated with five educational questions we hope to help reinforce this content with. Through creating these podcasts and having educational questions based on the content to help reinforce critical concepts, we hope to improve overall care of diabetics admitted at DHMC. We have built this educational program with a 21st century learner at heart, grounded in the concept of microeducation. For those of you who have not heard this term before, microeducation is the idea that small, more digestible pieces of learning serve to improve long-term retention and can be accessed and reused on the learner's own timeframe. With all that being said, I'm really excited to introduce one of our fabulous content creators, Heidi Johnson. She's an APRN in the Department of Endocrinology who has decades of experience in the clinic setting and has a passion for education that equals her vast knowledge of diabetes. Welcome to the podcast, Heidi. Can you please introduce this first educational topic now that the listeners have a better understanding of what we're trying to accomplish here?
1: Certainly. The goal of this first clinical episode is to frame our thoughts around how we think about inpatient insulin and the non-critically ill patient and describe the concept of total daily insulin, which is a cornerstone concept of inpatient diabetes management with insulin. We hope to delve into all aspects of inpatient diabetes care eventually, including insulin drips, insulin pumps, diabetics on tube feeds, steroid-induced hyperglycemia, and even ICU-level decision-making around diabetes and the nuanced considerations this requires. Before we go into any further detail, let's start with a broad analogy of how insulin works in the body. Think of a leaky faucet, Drip, drip, drip. That's what your pancreas does. Insulin is always floating around in your body. Now think about someone dumping something into the sink, such as leftover coffee or cereal. You now need to turn on the nozzle to increase the water flow to get that to go down the drain. That's what your body does when you start to consume your coffee or your cereal. The pancreas is alerted to rising sugar and starts producing more and shuts off once the level returns to normal range. Just like you turn off the faucet once the sink is clean. With a type 1 diabetic, they don't produce insulin. They don't have a leaky faucet. Theirs is run dry. For a diabetic, we generally think about using insulin as trying to mimic the metaphorical sink and reproduce normal physiology. This can be achieved through the use of basal and bolus insulin therapy. The combination of these two types of insulin help us to prevent severe hyperglycemia, which has a host of problems on its own.
0: Thanks so much for that analogy, Heidi. It really helps us put into context what the pancreas is doing. As a reminder, normal glucose in the hospitalized patient is 140 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. In comparison to the outpatient setting, patients are generally instructed to have a fasting glucose of 80 to 130 and a postprandial glucose, which is 90 to 120 minutes after a meal, less than 180. Another distinction between inpatient and outpatient diabetes care is the targets we generally set in defining a diabetic as, quote, well-controlled or not. Something that we will discuss in more detail shortly, but is very helpful to know, is if the home insulin regimen is generally working or if we have an opportunity to optimize their glycemic care while hospitalized by changing how we dose their insulin. In general, an A1C less than 9 is indicative of a relatively well-controlled home diabetic, and an A1C greater than 9 tells us that there are issues, which oftentimes are multifactorial and a thorough history can help better assess the nuances of their care that we can hopefully address and optimize while they are here in the hospital. A reminder that if their A1C is 9.0 on the dot, their average resting glucose is approximately 212, which means we certainly have some work, to do it fully optimizing their care, but the insulin they are on is a good, safe place to start this adjustment. We also wanted to note that this cutoff is to help steer decisions regarding continuation of home insulin when admitting a patient and not an absolute indicator for how well-controlled their diabetes is. Keep in mind, in the outpatient setting, more stringent definitions of a, quote, well-controlled diabetic hold true. For example, in a non-elderly diabetic, an A1C less than 7 is commonly targeted, and in an elderly or comorbid patient, at risk of adverse diabetic events, a more liberal of less than eight is generally said. One final nuance we wanted to keep in mind is that A1C can be falsely high or low in various clinical settings. Rapid states of cell turnover can all lead to falsely low A1C values. For this, think of chronic hemolysis, recent treatment of vitamin or nutrient deficiencies, and especially prone patient population is those with ESRD who are receiving erythropoietin. Conversely, low states of red cell turnover, think untreated vitamin deficiencies, can falsely elevate a one c
1: Thanks, Sage, for that information. As previously mentioned, a strategy to manage glucose is using subcutaneous insulin. The two categories we'll be discussing are basal insulin, which is generally long-acting, such as gene. There are some cases that we can talk about later that uses immediate-acting insulin. The bolus insulin, which is generally rapid acting, like LISPRO. The bolus dose is made up of two parts. First part is the meal associated insulin. This is to cover the carbs that will be consumed by the patient. And the second part is the correction. This is to adjust for other factors that can raise blood sugar, such as stress, illness, and other medications. Both basal and bolus are physiologic. And in non-diabetic patients, it's what occurs naturally via a complex neural hormonal cascade that culminates in beta cells of the pancreas, releasing insulin. Ideally, while in hospital, we aim to have 50% insulin be basal insulin and 50% to be short-acting bolus insulin. The goal of basal is to keep the resting glucose level less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. If not NPO, then typically decrease total daily insulin by 25 to 33% on admission in a well-controlled diabetic on insulin. Example, their A1c is less than 9. This is because the patient's dietary intake in the hospital is generally more regimented than when they are home. If they are made NPO, we typically decrease total daily insulin by around 50% for a type 2 diabetic. This is a general guideline based on how well their current glucose is being controlled. Every patient will have unique nuances to this important decision. We do this because physiologically, insulin is required to prevent the body from going into an anabolic state. Even if there is no oral intake, stopping insulin altogether, if a patient is not eating, can cause severe harm, especially in a type 1 or an insulin-dependent type 2.
0: Thanks, Heidi. If a diabetic patient is not on insulin at home or their A1C is greater than 9, indicative of subpar diabetic control prior to hospitalization, we can use a few simple calculations to help steer decision-making around how much insulin to safely order. We frame this calculation around a concept called total daily insulin, or TDI, as we'll refer to it going forward. This is all of a patient's insulin administered over a 24-hour window. It's worth noting that there are myriad oral diabetic medications that patients commonly present to the hospital on. We plan to discuss these oral glycemic medication classes and how that frames decisions on insulin management when admitting a patient, as well as guidelines for when to restart these important medications, all during a future episode, so stay tuned. As a brief teaser, we'll remind you that metformin is usually held in the hospital for a variety of reasons, but it is the third most commonly prescribed medication in the U.S. It works by decreasing nocturnal gluconeogenesis and increases insulin sensitivity and in some clinical contexts can be safe to give hospitalized patients.
1: Thanks, H. So for type 2 diabetics, the key marker is insulin resistance, and they do have some ability to make some level of insulin. But there are ways to calculate total daily insulin based off of their body weight, which is based off of their BMI. Think of their BMI as a surrogate for how resistant or sensitive any given patient is to insulin. But as a starting calculation for a BMI greater than 35, we multiply the weight in kilograms by 0.6. For a BMI of 27 to 34, we use the weight in kilograms times 0.4. And for a BMI less than 27, we multiply the weight in kilograms times 0.2. Once we calculate the total daily insulin dose, we are not done. We divide this further into our basal insulin and our bolus insulin. To calculate for the basal insulin, we divide the total daily insulin in half and give as long acting. Calculating the bolus dose is done in two parts. First, we wanna calculate the insulin to carb ratio using the rule of 500, where you take the magic number of 500 and divide it by the total daily insulin. Then we calculate the correction factor. The correction factor basically represents how sensitive we think the patient's gonna be to insulin. So if we think the correction factor is 20, then one unit of insulin is gonna drop them by 20 points. And we use the rule of 1500. Again, magical number, 1,500 divided by the total daily insulin. And that gives us our correction factor. But usually the first 24 hours, we want to do a correction factor every four hours, so that way if we're a little off on the total daily dose, we get a better idea of the next day.
0: Thanks so much for spelling that all out, Heidi. We know that this was a lot of information to digest, We will spend next episode talking more explicitly how TDI calculation works when admitting a type 2 diabetic patient to help reinforce this very important concept. So until then, stay well and mind the glucose.